I said this, you heard that. A few years ago, our daughter Abby had just gotten engaged and she was flying back to Washington, D.C. And so our son, Andrew, um, he was the air traffic controller in control of her plane. And so he told the pilot that his sister had just gotten engaged. But as the plane was landing in Washington, D.C., the pilot came on the intercom and said, I would like everyone to congratulate Abby Gunderson because she just found out that she's pregnant. (laughs) So the whole plane cheered as Abby turned uh, 10 shades of red. Uh, I said this, you heard that. It's great to see a Purpose Church. Uh, We are in our third week of a four-week series on the four personality temperaments and how to have God's Holy Spirit control them. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about the melancholics. And then last Sunday, we looked at the sanguines. Uh, Today, we're going to study the phlegmatics, Abigail and Abraham. And then next Sunday, we're going to finish up with the choleric. So let's review the temperaments, and then we're going to drill down deeper on the uh, phlegmatics. Uh, Pastor Eric had these two graphs last week. Uh, First of all, the sanguines, uh, they are, uh, first of all, if we put it back to introvert and extrovert, the sanguines are extroverts and they're people-oriented. The cholerics are also extroverts, but they are more task-oriented than people-oriented sanguines. Then the melancholics, they are introverts and task-oriented. The phlegmatics are introverts, but they are people-oriented. So now going on to what they say uh, when they speak. Sanguines speak the language of people and fun. Choleric speak the language of power and control. Melancholic speak the language of perfection and order. Phlegmatic speak the language of calm and harmony. And then what are their needs? Uh, sanguines need approval, acceptance, attention, and affection. Cholerics need loyalty, a sense of control, appreciation, and credit for their work. Melancholics need safety, sensitivity, support, uh, space, and silence. And phlegmatics need harmony, a feeling of worth, a lack of stress, and respect. Now here are a few new ones to help you figure out which category you fall into. In their strengths, um, sanguines, their strengths they commonly say, oh, I've got a story about that, wait till you hear this one. (laughs) And boy, Pastor Eric and I are both sanguines, and boy, that rings true. Or, that sounds fun. Uh, In their weaknesses, they commonly say, do you always have to be so serious? Or, oops, I completely forgot. (laughs) All right, let's go on to the cholerics. In their strengths, they commonly say, how about we do it this, this way? And it's usually the right way to get things done. Or, can you get that finished for me today? But in their weaknesses, they'll say, just do what I said, or hurry up. And then uh, the melancholics, and their strengths, they commonly say, I've been giving it some thought, uh, or I'm almost finished, I just want to fix one thing. And they just come up with these great ideas uh, for things to get done. But in their weaknesses, they commonly say, no one understands me, or I'm worried about that. And then finally, the phlegmatics, in their strengths, they commonly say, I'm good with whatever, or I think we can make that work. But in their weaknesses, they commonly say, I'll do that later, or I don't know. And then uh, the the next uh, category is how they manipulate people. Okay, this is the the downside, then we'll do the upside. 
Sanguines manipulate with charm and flattery. Cholerics manipulate uh, with tone and volume. Melancholics manipulate with moods and silence. And phlegmatics manipulate with procrastination and stubbornness. But then on the upside, what do they uniquely contribute uh, to the body of Christ? Sanguines, we love them uh, because uniquely they see the best in other people and in circumstances. We love our cholerics because uniquely they are visionaries that can see and achieve goals. We love our melancholics uh, because uniquely they can anticipate obstacles and creatively problem solve. Boy, we appreciate that. And then phlegmatics we appreciate uh, uniquely because they're calm and they're kind. Let's just hold that there for just a second. This is what we love about phlegmatics. In the midst of chaos, and in this past year of COVID, we have had chaos. They have been calm in the midst of that, and they have been kind. You know, it's a wonderful thing. So many of us uh, go to a place of lack of kindness when we're under stress or when there's chaos. But the phlegmatics we love because they're calm and they're kind in the midst of chaos. Now, here's the thing. God can use each one of these temperaments. Remember, no temperament, uh, no one is better than the other one. Uh, They are all good and God can use, all of them can be greatly used uh, by God. Uh, For example, uh, my opinion is, and I can back it up with just billions or or millions of people uh, that uh, are following these uh, movements in the world history over the last thousands of years, uh, I believe the four greatest influencers in human history, other than Jesus, Jesus was by far the greatest influencer in human history, even looking at it from a secular viewpoint. But I believe that just based on the raw numbers of people following what they created and what they started, other than Jesus, the four greatest influencers in human history were Moses, Peter, Abraham, and Paul. Moses, Peter, Abraham, and Paul. And yet, they are four different temperaments. Uh, Moses was a melancholic. Peter was a sanguine. Abraham was a phlegmatic and Paul was a choleric. So other than Jesus, the four greatest influencers in all of human history, four different temperaments. So God can use each one. They're all important, uh, none better than the other. So let me ask you a question right there in your living room or if you're listening uh, in your car or maybe uh, you're at your computer. Which one of the four do you think you are? Now, they're combinations of the two. Usually two are stronger than the other two. They can be in unique combinations with each other. But if, if, but if you had to guess which one you are more than the others, uh, which one uh, of these four temperaments do you think that, that you are? Now, like I said a couple of weeks ago, we dug deeper into the melancholics. Last Sunday, uh, Pastor Eric uh, led us deeper into the sanguines. Now, today, we're going to dig deeper into the phlegmatics. Now, here's our phlegmatic strengths list. Their strengths are they're relaxed, they're quiet and calm, they're content with themselves, they're kind, they're consistent, they're a steady and faithful friend, and they're accepting. They're affectionate They're diplomatic and peacemaking, rational, curious, observant, and an easy friend maker. Now, let's hold it here for just a second. I want to focus in on these two, diplomatic and peacemaking. Diplomatic and peacemaking. I just want to pause here, and I want to thank the phlegmatics 
in our church family. You say, Pastor Glenn, why do you want to thank them? Well, I believe you phlegmatics, and you know who you are right now. You're watching this right now. Which one of you are phlegmatics? Raise your hand right now if you're a phlegmatic. And I just want to just look right at you right now and just say that I want to thank you because I believe that you are one of the reasons that we have survived in our church the divisiveness of the COVID year. I think the phlegmatics have, everybody's helped us, and I thank God for everybody getting us through but I want to do a special thank you because we're talking about the phlegmatics to the phlegmatics. Um, let me tell you why I think they've been particularly helpful. Sanguines like me, I'm a sanguine, Pastor Eric's a sanguine. Uh, we tend to bounce uh, around in our opinions. And that was true with COVID. If I was sitting with a person that was very cautious about COVID, I would become very cautious. If I was with somebody and they were talking to me and they were not as cautious, I would become less cautious. Uh, for example, I was on a webinar uh, where speaking to pastors across the area about how churches should respond uh, to COVID, what our church was doing. They wanted to know, what are you doing here at Purpose Church? And I was on this webinar with my friend uh, Tom Mercer, who's pastor up at the High Desert Church. Uh, up in Victorville. And uh, my friend uh, Tom was very into being extremely compliant. And he, would, he, he said at that webinar, he said, well, as long as Romans 13 is in the Bible, we're going to be very compliant. And Romans 13 talks about that we should be submissive uh, to our government as followers of Christ. And listening to Tom say that, my friend, I was like, wow, that's really true. We, we really need to be compliant. But then other ones of my friends would quote Hebrews 10, verse 25, where it says, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And I'd listen to those friends and I'd say, wow, that's true. That regardless of what the government says, we need to be together uh, for emotional health and psychological health and mental health and for spiritual health. Yes, we, we, we need to be together. And so I would tend to bounce uh, between the two positions. So, so Sanguins uh, had a little bit of that tendency. I'm stereotyping and generalizing a great deal, I know. Uh, cholerics uh, during the epidemic. They believe that their opinion is the only right opinion. So a choleric, whatever they felt about COVID and how we should, uh, uh, how we should deal with it and how we should react to it, uh, they believe that their opinion is the only right opinion. And then there's the melancholics who find the whole debate about which way we should go and how we should do it to be, you know, so discouraging. And then there were the phlegmatics. And they, they were diplomatic and peacemaking. And they were the ones that would say, let's try to figure out the, the benefits and the truth in both of the positions on COVID, and let's try to balance those throughout the pandemic. Can I give a special shout out to one of our phlegmatic, our phlegmatic executive pastor, uh, Greg Zvalstad. He was just a rock star this past year of COVID. He, he would keep track of, I mean, he would tell you, he, he would know week by week how many beds were available in the COVID ward uh, or section of Pomona Valley Hospital. He'd be able to tell you how many cases there were in LA County. He'd be talking to people in our church all the time about their opinions from each position and each perspective. And week by week, uh, Pastor Greg was just really helping us to have a good, balanced, strategic approach. Uh, boy, I think of all the phlegmatics and, and melancholics, uh, probably with the exception of one, but mainly up in our media team, uh, boy, they are a 
bunch of great, uh, most of them are a bunch of great phlegmatics and melancholics. They're all great guys, uh, great people, uh, but just uh, most of them are phlegmatics and melancholics with the one exception. But boy, they, those, they really helped us to get through this thing and just, just really had that analytical nature to say, to, to, to think and to strategize how can we most effectively minister to people over this past year that we've had. But then there's the phlegmatic uh, weakness list. Uh, sometimes they can be shy or fearful of change. Uh, they can judge others or be stubborn or passive aggressive or indecisive or permissive. Uh, they may avoid responsibility, be unenthusiastic, too compromising, indifferent, sarcastic, discouraging, and non-participative. Now, the best example of a phlegmatic in the Bible is Abraham. And when you talk about Abraham, you just got to pause for a moment and just think of his influence. And, and from a secular viewpoint, I'm not even, there's, obviously there's this huge eternal spiritual impact of, of this man. But even from a secular viewpoint, just think of his influence. Uh, three religious groups today claim him as their spiritual father. I mean, the Jewish people, uh, Christians, and Muslims all claim Abraham as their spiritual father. And when you add up the numbers that follow those three faiths, there are about 15 million Jewish people in the world, about 2.4, pushing 2.5 billion Christians in the world. Uh, there's 1.9 billion Muslims for a total of over 55% of the world's population. Think about that. Abraham lived 4,000 years ago and yet over 55% of the world's 7.8 billion people consider Abraham to be their spiritual father. But despite his great impact, Abraham had great struggles. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham and his wife Sarah are going to Egypt. And uh, here we have a list of unhealthy phlegmatics, uh, what they struggle with. Well, first of all, they struggle with being fearful. And we see this in Abraham's life here in this story. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but will let you live. Uh, you know, this is what I said to Kimberly when we moved to California. I'm like, say that you're my sister because these Californians are going to see how beautiful you are and, and, and kill me uh, because of you. That, that, that's not true. But at any rate, uh, that's what Abraham said. Uh, say you are my sister uh, so that I'll be spared because of you. Uh, and, and, and so he was afraid and fearful not trusting in God, even though God had been uh, very real to him and had given him great promises, he still uh, was fearful as a phlegmatic. And then he was passive. We move on to chapter 16. Now, uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave by the name of Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, this was a practice back at that time, but we can see that this is not going to turn out well, all right? I mean, if any of you have ever watched Sister Wives on TV, you know this is not going to have a happy ending. And yet, Abram 
is, is passive. He gives into his wife. I think Sarah must have been a choleric. And you remember on that little graphic, the, the phlegmatic that's kind of that green mushy ball is being bounced on by the, the red cube choleric. Well, I think that's what was going on in this relationship. And he passively agreed with it. Abraham, Abram agreed to what Sarah said. And you know, just as you look ahead, speed ahead in history, Oh, what great conflict that caused. A young man named Ishmael came out of this relationship. Later came Isaac, who was the forefather of the Jewish people. Ishmael of the other people, the Arabs there in the Middle East. And the conflict that has been between those two people groups down through the centuries right up to the present time. That all goes back to a phlegmatic uh, being too passive. It all goes back to this story uh, right here. Uh, let's, uh, let's continue it now. Uh, so after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarah's wife took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now, he does another terrible mistake because of his passivity. Uh, great injustice to this young girl. And like I said, God is going to bless her. And out of her is going to come this, this great um, Arabic people uh, around the world and in the Middle East. And this wonderful people group. God's going to make good on it as he sees this single mom in the wilderness with her little baby boy. There's that beautiful story where he says, I'm the God. I think it is. I'm the God that sees you. And so God's going to make good of it. But boy, you can see the, the trouble and the conflict that come from Abraham, the phlegmatic, being passive. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Now God stepped in and intervened for this single mom and the injustice that was done against her. But this trouble, this conflict came from a passive, overly passive phlegmatic. And then sometimes phlegmatics can be without, they struggle with having enough faith. In Genesis 20, verses 1 and 2, same second verse, same as the first. Now Abram moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister, does this sound familiar? Wait, didn't you just say that story, Glenn? No, he, di he didn't learn from his first experience. He does it again. He, he goes, moves from faith back into fearfulness once again. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. And so these are some of the things that a phlegmatic um, can struggle with. But then spirit-led phlegmatics Oh my goodness, when the Holy Spirit gets hold of a phlegmatic and their unique temperament, what tremendous things can take place. Uh, they can be so peaceable and they can be peacemakers. Uh, it says in Genesis 13, now Lot, uh, who was moving about with Abram, it was Abraham's nephew, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. 
And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me. This is a typical phlegmatic, a peacemaker willing to to bend in order to make for there to be peace and to move beyond the conflict. Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we're close relatives. Is not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. And so he, he bends here and he actually gives uh, Lot the first choice of the land in order uh, to make for peace between them. Now, unfortunately, Lot chose to move near Sodom which was uh, the most wicked city in the world at that time. And he was unwise to move his tents, it says, near to Sodom, to be near uh, this, this wicked city. But fortunately, he had an uncle, Abraham, who the second trait of uh, spirit-led phlegmatics is they are reliable. And we see this in Genesis chapter 14. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew, Lot, and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Let's go back to that verse for one moment. There's like a miniature sermon within this overall sermon. And this would be a great devotional, maybe to do with your kids around the dinner table, if your parents or grandparents this week. The first time we meet Lot, when he goes and separates from Abraham, is he pitches his tents. He, He lives near to Sodom. The next time we meet him, he's living in Sodom, And now later on, you're going to find that Sodom is living in him. He adopts the worldview of Sodom rather than that of following after God. And that is such a great lesson for us today with the world around us, with the culture around us. If if we try to get as close to it as we can... Uh, we, we pitch our tents near to it. We begin to, to, to connect with the world around us, the, the culture that's anti-God. That's what I mean by the world, not the literal planet. But I'm talking about the, the anti-God culture. And we, and we get near to it because it's attractive to, it, to us. And the next thing we know, we're, we're, we're living in it. Now we're, we're selling out to following Christ and we're living in or thinking like the people of the world. And then later on, we begin to, the world gets inside of us. We begin to adopt a non-Christ following worldview. So we begin to be near Sodom and then we're living in Sodom and now we find Sodom living within us. Now, Abraham's gonna have to rescue him here. Going on to verse 13. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abraham. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And eventually he rescues uh, lot from this situation. So uh, those wonderful phlegmatics within our church family, they are uh, peacemakers, they are reliable, and then when the Holy Spirit has a control of us, we move beyond our fears and can be faith-filled. 
Um, we see this in Genesis chapter 22, which is the hardest thing God ever asked a person to do. God asked himself to give up his son on the cross uh, as he gave Jesus to us so that we could be forgiven. So God did it, uh, but he merely asked Abraham to do it, and then he stops Abraham from doing it. But this is the hardest thing that any person has ever been asked to do. It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Early the next morning, oh my goodness, is that a powerful set of four words. Uh, when God asks me to do something that I don't want to do, I procrastinate. I'll do it in the late afternoon. I'll do it in the evening. Maybe I'll do it five minutes before midnight. But Abraham here was asked to do the most a terrible thing, the, the most difficult thing we can any, imagine. And he gets up early in the morning trusting God, believing that if, even if he sacrificed his son, God was going to raise him from the dead once again, which is a foreshadowing of what happened with God's son where Jesus died and did rise again from the third day. And so they figured that's what God was going to do. God did something different. He stopped him from doing it all together. But he was full of faith that if we trust God, God's in control, it's going to work out in the end. And so early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. Now the place that God had told him about was called Mount Moriah. And that's where the temple in Jerusalem was eventually built. But about 400 yards from Mount Moriah is another mount called Golgotha or Calvary. And on that hill, God actually did what he merely asked Abraham to do and stopped him from doing. He actually gave his son so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be saved. Now, with the remainder of time that we have, let's talk about another phlegmatic, Abigail, the peacemaking phlegmatic. And I just love this story. Kimberly and I love it so much that we named our daughter Abigail after the Abigail in this story. And what a great peacemaking story this is. And I'm just going to read parts of it. But if you have a chance to read the whole story later today, please do so. It is just a fabulous, fabulous story. It says, now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman but her husband was surly and mean in his deal. He's kind of what people say about Kimberly and me. You know, she, she's beautiful and intelligent, and her husband is surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. Uh, next verse, verse 4. Uh, out of 14, we'll skip down to verse 14, excuse me. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings but he hurled insults at them. And I skipped over a few verses there, but basically what happens is Nabal cheats David and, uh, and Nabal insults David. 
Now, David is a, a trained warrior. He's, he's, he's just, and his group of men around him, they are like the Navy SEALs of their time, like the Army Special Forces. They are killing machines. And so as soon as they are insulted in this way, the first thing, and, and David had a hair-trigger temper, he, the first thing he says is, everybody, grab your sword. And so all these trained warriors grab their swords. They're going to go down and kill Nabal and his whole uh, household if somebody doesn't do something about it. So it says, yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us. And the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us. The whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do. Oh, does a phlegmatic and a melancholic, but particularly today a phlegmatic loves to hear that assignment. Think it over and see what you can do. Can you come up with a peacemaking strategy to avoid this conflict and the bad things that are going to happen because of it? Because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Let's pause there. Can we go back to that for just a moment? Uh, wickedness is associated with somebody that you just can't talk to. Uh, let me ask you the question. Can people talk to you? Uh, can, can people express to you uh, something that's on their mind or a different way of doing things? Because wickedness is associated with people that nobody can talk to them because they're just so stubborn and they're not going to be open to any kind of feedback from anybody else. Righteousness in the Bible is connected with people that are able to receive uh, correction and new ideas and guidance from another person. So he's such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sayas of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead and I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her and she met them. David had just said, he's muttering to himself as he comes down to kill Nabal. It's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. Uh, she fell at her feet and said, now I have, I've just bolded the next 10 verses because this is one of the greatest peacemaking, conflict-avoiding speeches ever, ever that I've ever seen. Look at how she deals with David. Now, angry, out of control, sword in hand, bunch of trained uh, killers around him and they're going on a mission. And look how she dissuades him. Pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives, and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands... May your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. 
And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. You know what she did? She's helping him remember his greater purpose. She's helping David remember, don't do something stupid or rash or impulsive now that will damage you uh, later on. You're going to become king and somebody's going to Google your name someday and find out that you did this thing where you took revenge into your own hands and it's going to haunt you later on. You're going to be king. You're going to be building this kingdom, doing God's work and this impulsive thing tweet that you tweeted out or this thing on social media or this thing you said or this thing you did is going to come to hinder God's purpose and plan for your life. Uh, going to the ne next verse. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have this on his conscience, the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, hey, oh, by the way, remember your servant. <laughs> David said to Abigail, that's gonna watch how that plays out in just a minute. David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. He was so grateful that she had stepped in and stopped him uh, from, from doing something uh, of this nature that would haunt him later on in his life. And then the story has... a. Very, um, oh boy, a, a, a very um, a, a just uh, but difficult ending because what happens is uh, Abigail goes back, tells her husband that he almost got killed. He has a stroke and 10 days later, God strikes him dead and David says, hey, Abigail, why don't you marry me? And she goes, sure. And she leaves all the safety and security of that household and all the wealth of it and all the protection because David was on the run from King Saul at this point. It was a risky life that she was choosing. But she said, I'm all in. And they lived happily ever after. All right. Let's, let's wrap it up with just uh, some practical uh, things for those that are phlegmatic, if you're a phlegmatic, or if you know a phlegmatic. Okay, let, let's start with how to do phlegmatic strength training, all right? Practice regularly doing something, a class, hobby, or a new skill that interests you. Uh, practice advocating for yourself rather than letting resentment build. Uh, practice jumping into the conversation and sharing your ideas and opinions even before you're asked. Uh, practice trusting in your abilities and remember the times you've succeeded in the past. You can do this because you've done it in the past. Be confident. Respond enthusiastically. Volunteer to be the leader. Uh, committing to deadlines and meeting them. Expressing that you need time to think rather than leaving others confused by your silence sticking around until conflicts are fully resolved, vocalizing your admiration and or appreciation of others, a bonus if you do this directly to them. 
And then those of us that love phlegmatics or have a phlegmatic in our life that we care about. Uh, here's here's the, the next category. You can build up with your words. I said this, you heard that. Do you want phlegmatics to hear something that is going to build them up? Letting them do one task at a time. Being kind in your criticism. Asking their thoughts, opinions, and feelings. Showing curiosity about their interests. Encouraging their involvement. Listening completely without interrupting. Giving them time to process and handling conflict calmly and quietly. But, on the other hand, be careful. Uh, Here's a warning. You may tear a phlegmatic down by these words. If you say these words, uh, they're going to hear negatively rather than positively to build them up. Expecting things done in your time frame, not theirs. Pushing their involvement or interaction with others. Not listening when they speak up. Mistaking their quiet for apathy. Speaking down to them stressing them with expectations and orders, not verbalizing their, time, their value by assuming they know how you feel about them so you don't have to say it out loud. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you've made, all, made us all unique and, and different and every person, all 7.8 billion of us are unique combinations of these temperaments. And yet, Lord, we can learn generalities about each other and know how to speak in such a way and treat each other in such a way that what is heard, what is felt, is loving and builds people up rather than tearing them down. And so thank you, Lord, for the phlegmatics and the cholerics and the melancholics and the sanguines of our church family and of our families and of our coworkers and the people we go to school with And Lord, I pray that you would just show us how to more effectively love each other, understand each other, so that we can more effectively encourage each other and build each other up so that we can fulfill the plans and the purpose that you have for each of our lives. Thank you for this time together. I pray for each person uh, that's, that's watching right now that you will bless them and keep them and make your face to shine upon them and be gracious unto them. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, and all God's family said, amen.